And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, Judge Robert Conrad. Title of his book, John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads, published by our friends over at TAN Publishing, naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Welcome, Judge. Thank you. Good Great to be, to be here. here. Judge Robert J. Conrad, Jr., you were a judge, and you, are you still a judge? I'm a federal judge in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. So uh, it's not surprising that you might have an interest in Thomas More, because obviously he was a lawyer, right? But you seem to be even more interested in John Fisher, who was a cleric. Why? Now, I figured if I wrote a book about uh, John Fisher, no one would know who I was talking mm -hmm. about. If I wrote a book about Thomas More, everybody would think, well, that's already been written. But writing about the two men together was a fascinating project. Very different personalities, but both called by God to stand for right. truth. Well, you've got friendship mentioned. You've got that as a chapter. Were they good friends? They were. Okay. Um, and they actually met at Traitor's Gate when they were both interrogated by mm -hmm. Cromwell and said to one another, this is a narrow gate we're following. We'll, I'll see you in heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, you say the subtitle is Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. It strikes me today a lot of people are losing their souls while trying to keep their heads. Doesn't it seem that way? It does. And, and so one of the uh, reasons for writing the book is its relevance uh, to today. I think uh, if, if we're going to be believers in the middle of this world, we will suffer some harm uh, for following the truth. Right. Now, right in the beginning of the foreword that uh, was written in the book, uh, by your friend. Um, you talk about, and it's the kind of the Thomas Moore and some of the great lines that he had, and you point out later that Fisher doesn't have as many of these as Moore does, but a great line, that in good faith there is no more difference between your grace and me, but that I shall die today and you tomorrow. Is that one of the great lessons that is so lost on people today in understanding we're all going to die, whether it's today or tomorrow. I remember Father Benegrash Shell said, nobody's ever permanently healed of anything. Yeah, the great thing about these two men is their present sense of the eternal life mm -hmm. affected what they thought and what they did on earth. And I think that's what Moore is trying to tell his friend. And you also talk about the moral formation of these men that made them willing to court death in response to a prince that they served. What is that moral formation? Are we missing that today? So I think uh, this wasn't a momentary thing for both men. They were ready uh, when the uh, crisis came because they had led lives of prayer, uh, uh, deeply spiritual interior lives. And so having done that, when the crisis came, they were ready for it. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting, uh, we, we, we all know kind of the, the final lines we've heard before from the Bolt play and Thomas More about, you know, giving the money and thanking the, the executioner. Yes. But, but uh, it's interesting because I had not known this about Fisher telling his servant that this, his execution day, he considered his marriage day. Yes, uh, again, uh, the sense that death was just the portal to something greater. And uh, Fisher was actually woken up at mm -hmm. five o'clock in the morning on the day of his execution, told that he would be executed in four hours. Mm -hmm. And his re response to that was to, to go back to sleep right. and then get dressed up for his mm -hmm. marriage day. It's interesting, too, as a lawyer, you talk the trials through which Moore and Fisher passed would not exactly pass a demanding test of due process of law, even in, certainly in our time, uh, with how it, though it seems to seem to people today, there seems to be a little more politicization of the legal system that we're seeing and not a lot of due process to some of us lay people 
So I'm wondering if we're going backwards here. We have uh, much better structures uh, to render justice and mm -hmm. due process in our day. But at the end of the day, it still depends upon the integrity of uh, the human beings administering that process. Mm -hmm. Now, Fisher was connected early on to what was going on because of his relationship with Catherine of Aragon, right? He was, uh, his most famous line, comparable to Moore's, was defending her at the uh, legatine hearing in 1529 when the king said that every bishop in the realm supported him. Fisher stood up and said, no, sir, not I. You have not my consent thereto. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a mind-blowing statement by the bishop in front of all the... Put Wolsey on the spot. Put Wolsey on the spot, but the king too. Right. And the archbishop who had told the king that Fisher had signed the affidavit in support of him. Fisher right, you, you, you have a great uh, recounting of that. Yes. It's also interesting to me because we always talk about the idea that silence implies consent and you talk about conscience and want of malice, but you know, you would think if somebody said, uh, said something that was wrong and you didn't say anything against that, uh, it would imply consent, but would that be just trying to wiggle out of getting in trouble? Moore was a brilliant lawyer, and he was uh, using every legal tool at his disposal to, to keep out of trouble mm -hmm. and to keep his family safe. Mm -hmm. and, and Fisher, in much the same way, was willing to sign an oath as long as the phrase was inserted, so far as the law of God permits. Mm -hmm. Both men weren't looking for a fight, but mm -hmm. when the fight came, they were ready for it. Right. Uh are you a Gail Sayers fan? I know that you, uh, <laughs> I am third. I remember that as soon as I saw that. Yeah, that was yeah. Gail Sayers, right? Yeah, so it was uh, uh, a brief reference to my Chicago uh, upbringing, but the sense that uh, in his memoir he said, God is first, my family is second, and I am third. Mm -hmm. That seemed to me to be exactly uh, characteristic of Thomas More. Right. Now, in the introduction here, you talk about Henry and how, you know, Henry was the defender of the faith, Etc. Though Thomas More, I think, was probably the guy behind the scenes taking care of that stuff. But you talk about tragically, the arc of his reign would pivot to destruction, surrounded by sycophants, driven by an obsessive desire for a male heir, and unable to restrain his sexual appetite. He veered into de despotism. Um, is that a threat to a lot of people today? That there's too many people telling you what you want to hear? I think so, yeah. and certainly around the, the in the judicial realm that I inhabit, there. Are, there is the temptation to, to, to um, for those who work with you not to challenge you. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Thomas More was uh, a great challenge to Henry. They were friends at first. Mm -hmm. um, right, but really as, good friends, right. But as Henry increasingly veered in the direction of his great matter, insisting on the divorce and remarriage, uh, and insisting that everybody else agree with him that that was right and proper, that's where the split occurred. Again, isn't that interesting that that's so much of what we have today, which is that not only do people want to be able to do what they want, but they want you to anoint it. Yeah, and so that's, uh, that's the thing that Fisher and Moore, uh, they bent as far as they could bend, but when, uh, when asked to agree to something their conscience told them was wrong, they couldn't do you it. you got a great quote in here, which I was unaware. G.K. Chesterton, nearly 400 years after Moore's death and six years before his canonization, 1935, prophetically remarked, Blessed Thomas More is more important at this moment than any moment since his death, even perhaps the great moment of his dying. And then you go on to his quote, but he's not as quite as important as he will be in a hundred years. It's one of uh, Chesterton's many prophecies that right. turns uh, to be spot on. Uh, Moore is uh, the person to emulate in today's world where we have 
suppression of thought and speech, religious liberties uh, at issue, and, and political turmoil, uh, following the path that Fisher and Moore followed is and, the way to go. And it's interesting, too, because you, you make the, the point and you juxtapose the two in the sense, as you say, Moore was outgoing and very social, uh, Fisher was very austere. That was uh, the, the great thing about writing the book is mm -hmm. you couldn't have, uh, personality-wise, you couldn't have two more different men. Uh, but uh, they wind up uh, pursuing their own vocations in different areas and end up at the end of the day in tower cells next to each other and executed within two weeks of each other for the, uh, for the cause of the church and the, and the truth of God. You say Fisher and Moore suffered intense persecution and emerged smiling. They laughed at death and now, as if they were right, lived more splendidly than the King of England. What is the source of their joy? How can their defeat be perceived as the greatest win? Who are these guys? That's really what the book's about. Yeah, right. and, and the sense again of uh, uh, eternal life in heaven where they will merrily uh, be friends with their uh, opponents. Right. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal thing that they... Right, and you stated more specifically how to live as they lived, how to even want to live as they lived is what the book's about. It eschews a chronological narrative in exchange for a series of life stories. Why'd you decide to go that way? So as a, as a trial lawyer and as a grandfather, I, I, I believe strongly in the power of a well-told story to communicate mm -hmm. truth. And so when I'm on the couch with my grandchildren, I start once upon a time mm -hmm. and then tell them a story, hoping yes. through the story to communicate a, a deeper truth. And that's what I was trying to do in the book as well. And also notice about the friendship connection you talk about, I write purposely about the two together. The Lord in all age seems to have sent his friends out two by two. Yeah, and so this, uh, it wasn't an accident that mm -hmm. uh, Moore and Fisher found themselves in the same situation, separated uh, by two weeks uh, by their death, honored together uh, as saints on uh, June 22nd. Uh, lived again, very different vocations, different personalities, the same uh, one true God mm -hmm. that they served. I, give you, I hope I'm giving you credit for this line. You say, Moore indeed is a man for all seasons. We know that uh, from the play, and that was actually a Whittington, I think, early on yes. had, had, had coined that phrase. But then, did you coin John Fisher as a man of faith and all reason? Yes, he... Uh, That's a great line. <laughs> well, thank you. The greatest preacher of his day, uh, uh, an academic priest who wrote uh, some of the most beautiful and thoughtful sermons. Right. Uh, of his day. He you say, finally came to me late as my desire to write this book began to crystallize that I found in the lives of these men the man I wanted to be. What is the hardest thing for the average person to overcome to live like these men? You know, the, the sense of uh, uh, pursuing truth is more important than human respect. Mm -hmm. Pursuing truth is more important than job advancement. Mm -hmm. And so the willingness to stand for truth even though it will cost you uh, heavily. Isn't part of the problem we have today is a lot of people doubt there is a quote-unquote truth. Well, Fisher and Moore didn't doubt that. Right, right. They believed it, they studied it, they came to an apprehension of what the truth was, and then they lived their lives consistent with it. That's what we need to do. Now, you alluded to talking to your grandkids, and, and you say that this book is ultimately a script for my children, my grandchildren, of the kind of man their father and grandfather longs to be. So are you, are you falling, still striving? <laughs> I am. I, uh, I have an admiration for these men. Uh, I, f I fall far short of their holiness, their courage, and their integrity, but I long to imitate them. How'd you get Brett Kavanaugh's name in this book? <laughs> 
Well, uh, because it was uh, actually Father Paul Scalia in his uh, eulogy of his father mm -hmm. uh, referenced this man who was uh, loved by some, hated by others, but always spoke the truth. And, and everybody thought in the eulogy he was talking about his father, Justice Scalia, and he said, mm -hmm. I'm talking, of course, about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And in similar fashion, I, 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 I describe a, a hearing in the nation's capital involving rumors of teenage sex, and, and all of that was surrounding the Kavanaugh right, hearing. Absolutely, right. But I was talking about the Legatine hearing in 1529. Right, and some of the outrageous things were, yes. that were brought up about him. But clearly, and you, you point out here, the, the fix was in. One of the things that surprised me is actually how long it took from the time they were kind of basically condemned to the tower to actually have them executed. Why do you think it took so long? So Henry starts in 1527 with this great matter. He wants to divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn, but there was no way in that society that he could do that. And so he spent years trying to convince uh, the theologians in England and the nobles that his position was correct. And, Finally, he gave up mm -hmm. trying to, to get a papal dispensation and declared himself uh, head of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. That process took a number of years, and, and in order to achieve his results, he wound up imprisoning Fisher and Moore for a year mm -hmm. for failing to sign the oath he wanted them to sign and ulti ultimately putting them on trial for treason mm -hmm. uh, for speaking against his title. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about here, first of all you talk about, you list Catherine of Aragon where she stood up at this great litany here of, of defending herself yes. by not defending herself, right. just stating this is what I've been and I'm not going to respond to the charges effectively against me. But also you note here, as they say, his, his henchmen would make it clear, this is the king's, the wrath of the king is death. Fisher's execution would indeed occur six years later, almost to the day, June 22nd, 1535, again, still long period of time. Yes, and so uh, Henry had a lot of work to do to get Parliament to pass different statutes that would enable him to imprison these guys and ultimately execute them. But I love Thomas More's response mm. to that wrath of the king is death. Mm. He says, is that all, my lord, that in good faith the only difference between me and you is that I will die today and you will die And that's tomorrow. the line that I kind of started off with yeah. right at the beginning of yeah. the book. That was the precursor to that line coming out. And, and what's also important is this, you talk about conscience. That's what it's all really all about. Uh, them standing up for their conscience in a chapter two on truth, for it is much against my conscience. He says, I cannot swear without jeopardizing my soul to perpetual damnation because uh, of his conscience. In fact, there's that, that great line that is uh, highlighted in the, in the, in the bolt uh, play where he goes, I think it was the Duke of Norfolk or whoever right. he was talking to about the idea, well, when you follow your conscience and you're in heaven and I don't follow mine and I'm hell, you know, so I can't do that. Yeah, it's a great line. It's actually taken from a letter Moore wrote his daughter Meg. Okay. And in his letter, he's talking about a juror, a holdout juror who's not going with the other 11. And he says to them, when you go to heaven for following your conscience and I go to hell for following mine, will you come with me? Right. Fellowship. You say, what is a conscience that both Moore and kept coming back to? And you say, Moore mentions conscience 40 times in, in one of his letters. And then you go on to say that they were not, as, as Bolt called him, self-confident, uh, but rather Christ-confident. I love that distinction. Uh -huh. uh, not the subjective I, uh, who's cr trying to seek after rights, 
but the object of truth, of believe, I believe. And so to Moore and Fisher, it was more a, an exercise of discovering mm -hmm. what the eternal truth was and applying it to these new facts right. rather than asserting a new right. You say the centrality of conscience is not located in the supreme self, but rather in submission to eternal truth. There, there's a lot of confusion about what a conscience actually is. Uh, you know, people mistake their will for their conscience. Right, and Newman right. would describe conscience as the divine light within. So it's really not an assertion, but a discovery. Right. Well, you quote John Paul II, if we have freedom to choose, we have the duty to choose wisely. Said that in his 1987 trip right. to uh, America. Right. And um, I think it's so profound, this, the emphasis on duty, not rights. You said, when first approached to consider Henry's Gary Matter, Fisher spent two years devoting himself to a scrupulous study of the scriptural authorities and opinions of the fathers. So if it was something that could be done, he would do it, but he couldn't do it because he read it couldn't be done. Both men sincerely listened to the king, uh, searched the, the Bible, searched the church fathers' teachings, mm -hmm. um, did a diligent study, talked to others, prayed, and only then formed uh, their opinion. Right. But once formed, Moore refers to the field being one. His mm -hmm. conscience was so clear, he knew exactly what he right. should do. And it's interesting, too, because uh, in some ways, a greater feat in some ways is that although conscience reigns supreme in each man's mind and heart, both adamantly refused to judge the conscience of others. Fisher wrote, not that I condemn any other man's conscience. Their conscience may save them, and mine must save me. Both men uh, gave freedom of conscience to those around them, did not judge, but uh, were very confident in their own approach. Mm -hmm. and, and do you feel as well that they were surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? There is a sense that uh, uh, Henry was trying to say to them, everybody else in England is going with me. Why can't you come? Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't see themselves as inhabitants of a small island uh, geographically separated from the rest of the right. world. They saw themselves as part of the great cloud of witnesses uh, who had, from the time of Christ on, thought this way. Why did you say lawyers say that words matter and they are right, but conduct matters too? Because uh, the greatness of these two men are not just in their, uh, their brilliance and their integrity. It's that they were willing, once they formed their conscience, to act consistent with it. And it's that acting consistent with them, uh, with their well-formed conscience, that makes them the men to, uh, for us to model today. Right, going to Meg and his discussion, at least as it's laid out, I guess, in Man for All Seasons, and this is something I think we see today. You want me to swear the acts of suggestion. God more regards the thoughts of the heart than the, word, than the words of the mouth or so you've already told me. He says, when a man, jump down, when a man takes an oath, Meg, he's holding his own self in his hands. Goes on to say, you go on to say, Moore's daughter Meg seems to express the incredulity. With regard to the oath, she urged her father to speak words but believe otherwise in his heart. In my own career, I have seen someone take an oath with his fingers crossed. But isn't that a lot of what people say? They say, well, you know, God knows what I really believe in right. my heart, so he wouldn't want me to suffer or lose my job or get off just by telling somebody, I mean, it's, I'm not really doing, I'm, I'm agreeing to this against my will, so it's not really a sin. That's the rationalization, and the, uh, the hope in writing the book is that uh, uh, those in those situations, confronted with those situations today, they might aspire to the right. kind of 
uh, choices that Fisher and Moore made. Right. So I'm assuming you see a lot of this. In an age of casual relativism, we need to need our yes to be our yes and our no to be no. We need to speak truth to power, to our communities, to our neighbor. We need Fisher and Moore. Our justice system would be radically different if people who took the oath had the same sense of uh, seriousness that uh, Fisher and Moore did, that God was omnipotent, uh, omniscient, and the rewarder of truth-telling and the punisher of, of falsehood. If we had that sense in our courtrooms today, it would be radically different. Right. And good old Richard Rich, we all remember him. One thing I didn't realize, I know he got it for Wales, and uh, he was involved in very many things. And clearly, what's interesting, as you point out, it wasn't like he was a good guy, and that was the only thing he did wrong. Right. But uh, what I didn't realize is when Mary came back to power and Catholicism was kind of reinstated, he became Catholic again. Uh, absolutely. And he started persecuting all the guys he was helping before. And when she left the stage and Elizabeth came in, he switched he, back. He, yeah, so yeah. he was uh, the best description of him uh, was by one of Moore's uh, biographers. He was a time server. Right. We don't want to be Richard Rich. Right. Yeah, chameleon. What was the connection between Moore and the Carthusian monks? You kind of overlapped that. You talk about what he wanted to do in his early life and then how he kind of ended up at the same place. It's a brilliant uh, vocational point that in early on in his career, while he studied the law, he was discerning whether he had a monastic calling, decided he didn't. And so he went in a different direction uh, than the Carthusian monks that he was living with. They both end up at the tower. Right. And his biographer refers to him as being a monk at last. Right. Now, uh, more scholar, Dr. Gerard Wegemer, who's been on this program, and we know, and, and you know as well, uh, talks about here, you, you quote him, and then you talk about, in the cultivated virtues of faith lived in the present moment, a hope that they did not depend on appearances, a charity rooted in eternity. And what, what captured me was a present moment. That is yeah. something Mother Angelica always talked about. You need to live in the present moment. And it was a source of their cheerfulness. They weren't cheerful by temperament. They were cheerful by theological virtue. Right. And one of the virtuous things about Fisher at the time was, as you point out, in Rochester, not a great diocese, but that he actually spent 90% of his time there. And back then, people didn't always do that. A lot of these bishops and cardinals didn't live where their diocese were. Right, and because of that, he was beloved. When he uh, is summoned uh, to face interrogation, he rides from Rochester to London and the streets are lined with his parishioners who he has loved and they loved him in return. Right. So do you like to play golf more than you like to hunt? <laughs> Was that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> I figured maybe. I got in trouble with Father uh, Mitch for that. Oh, did you? <laughs> he is a hunter. <laughs> he right, is. Right. Yeah, and the parable you tell here, you adjusted the story, right? Yes, and so the, the, the lesson that Fisher draws from his hunting analogy is that uh, love makes any labor joyful. Now, as you talk about here in the chapter in Friendship to the King, Moore was an old and devoted friend. Thus, Moore truly was executed by a friend, making this a tragic tale of torn and tattered friendship. And so the King betrayed a friendship. Moore never let go of the friendship. He was praying for the King at, his, at the point of execution and believed that he would enjoy heaven together with the King and be merry. You, at the end of that chapter, uh, you talk about such virtuous friendship. We must amend Erasmus's description, who was humanist friend of his. Uh, Thomas Moore was born and made and died for friendship. His perception of friendship extended into the eternal life. And you kind of have a connection you, in, in chapter on baptism, you kind of, uh, in a sense, relate John Fisher to John the Baptist. 
And uh, Fisher uh, did that expressly at the legatine hearing and just enraged King Henry VIII, made the clear uh, connection, a parallel between King Henry VIII and Herod and John Fisher and, and John the Baptist. And well, if you think about it, like you see, you got a Herodias and you got Anne Boleyn, right. both of them pushing for this to happen. And so uh, John the Baptist's feast day was June 24th, and so Henry hurried up the execution so he wouldn't execute John Fisher on the feast of oh, John okay. the Baptist. He wound up executing him on the feast of St. Alban, the first English martyr. Now, what is the field of the cloth of gold? So that was a, uh, an extraordinary meeting between the kings of England and France to show off their wealth, power, and uh, uh, strength. And it was attended uh, by both uh, Fisher as a bishop and more as a, a, a part of uh, Henry VIII's caravan. And Fisher writes about it in a mm -hmm. sermon in which he says, uh, all the splendor and, and, and glory of the field of cloth of gold pales in comparison to the glory of heaven. Just before we go, in our closing minute or so, uh, you, talk, you have a very large appendix in this book. Why? So I wanted to give readers an opportunity to, to live like Fisher and Moore mm -hmm. lived. And so there's a novena there. If a, if a reader wanted to do a nine-day novena, there are some inspirational quotes from Fisher and Moore and, and prayers uh, with respect to that. Um, other prayers of Thomas More and John Fisher. The sense that the, the key to their success was their spiritual mm -hmm. life. And so uh, there's a path in the appendix for people if they're interested to follow. How long did it take you to write this book? You know, I, um, I wrote it during the pandemic year, and but when I sat down to write, I realized I'd been thinking about it for a long time, so. And how do you write? And when do you write? So I took a satchel of books to my uh, oldest daughter's lake house and, mm -hmm. and spent four-day weekends uh, banging out different chapters. And committed myself, if I got to a certain point, I would play golf at six. Who was your editor? It's Tan Books, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Connor Gallagher is the CEO of right, uh, right. Tan Books, and he was my former law clerk. So, oh, really? I saw, I noticed that. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I didn't realize this was. Well, if you write another book, anything in the works? Well, we uh, have a meeting next week with Tan okay. to talk about okay, projects. Okay. Well, when something comes up, make sure you stop by, Judge. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to meet you, Judge Robert Conrad Jr. And the book is John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. Well worth the read. Available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Thanks for joining us here on Bookmark. We shall see you next time.